You know you could be more productive if you focused on what you do best and outsource the rest. But finding the skilled professionals you can trust with your business is hard and it takes valuable time. What if you could outsource your freelance hiring to somebody who understands your business and has your back? That's Results Resourcing. They find perfect virtual freelancers on demand for a lower cost and better outcome than a temp agency, your buddy, or somebody's fourth-hand referral. Results Resourcing helps you define your job requirements, then they search the web to find independent professionals who meet your exact requirements. They do the interviews, they vet the top candidates, and they look for skills, experience, cost, and cultural fit to quickly find you a curated, hand-picked talent pool of the best virtual freelancers who can help you succeed. Results Resourcing frees you from the time-intensive hassle of hiring contract pros. They do it for you. Go to ResultsResourcing.com and let them find, vet, and hire your next freelancer for 35% off with the code PFPOD. That's P-F-P-O-D at ResultsResourcing.com. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Every moment of our lives is a story that we're telling ourselves. And sometimes those stories serve us, and sometimes they really stifle us and hold us back. And when we can recognize, oh, like, and I say the diagram I have in the book is like, there's what happens and there's what, what we make that mean. And in the intersection of those two is, is our story. That was Amber Ray, the author of Choose Wonder Over Worry. She joins me today to jam about how worry shows up and what we can do to convert our worry stories into wonder. This episode is particularly good for creatives in the thrash of finishing their best work as we dive into the patterns that come up when doing so and how Amber worked through them herself when she was finishing this book. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well, that's exactly what SaneBox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved SaneBox for years, and I think you will too. Amber, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, The topic that you write about, like choosing uh, wonder over worry, is so present because it seems like sometimes worry is our natural state. Right. It's mm. like we all are experienced and accredited worriers. 
Um, and that that's how we spend so much of our life. And that's how we make our decisions from a place of worry. So being able to shift that over to wonder, such a fabulous thing. And I really want to applaud the courage it takes to come from um, behind the work like you used to be to actually being um, in front of the work with the book and everything like that. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the book. Of course. Thanks for having me. Okay. So um, you write in the book that, you know, this book or writing a book, it was elusive for you. Let's put it that way. Let's be nice. It, it was elusive in the sense that every year, um, you know, you would want to write it and it'd be like the book and then something would happen and something would happen. And I'm curious, what was that shift for you where it was like, I, I've had enough. I can't keep doing this. I got to make some, I got to make a different choice here. Yeah, well, I think first off, elusive is a very friendly word to describe, which it was like, it was this heart-wrenching, heart-aching disappointment with myself that I wasn't pursuing the things that really mattered the most to me. And I was being a bit of a shadow artist, helping everyone else with their ideas and dreams and putting mine in the background. So just to say, it was, it was, it wasn't just like some like, oh, that might be cool. It was like, no, I have to do that. But I kept getting in my own way. Um, so I'm now I forgot your question. What was your question? What was the, what was the inciting <laughs> moment? Like oh, the, the, shit. Yeah, the, the inciting shift. moment, you know, I got sick of my own shit and I got sick of waiting and procrastinating and saying someday I got sick of the heartache that was coming along with, I'm going to do it then. As soon as I get to here, then I'll finally commit. Oh, my platform needs to be bigger. Oh, I need more relationships. Oh, I need more experience. I had all these worries. I had all these insecurities, these fears, these doubts. And eventually I just got sick of them. It was actually, there was a moment when I woke up on my 30th birthday um, and I felt really sad. And I wasn't expecting to feel sad on, on, on the 30th. It's a birthday. Usually I'm like, let's pop the champagne. Happy, happy, happy birthday. Um, but I had been doing a lot of work around emotions and understanding what our emotions are wanting to reveal to us. And so to practice my own work, I opened my journal that morning and I, I said, you know, hey, sadness, I see you're showing up today. What is it that you want me to know? And sadness said, you're playing small and I'm sick of it. And that was the moment when I said, okay, thank you. Um, it's really time to make a change. And then it was a series of things after that. I went to this workshop with Elizabeth Gilbert and Rob Bell. That was a huge catalyst where Liz Gilbert said there was this moment when she was in her early stage of writing and she was like working her job and doing these things and had all these activities and was like sort of writing, but not really. And she told this wise older woman about her aspirations and dreams around being a writer. And the woman said, well, you know, and she was complaining like, but it's not really going anywhere. And the, the wise woman said to her, well, you're going to have to say no to get what you actually want. No to some things. And Liz was like, yeah, of course, maybe I should say no to like, um, the things I think I should be doing and like the, all the fears that I have, things like that. And the, the woman said, no, you need to say th no to things that you do want mm -hmm. to say yes to the thing that matters even more. And so it was like, that was an aha for me because I realized I was saying yes to like 17 different projects at that point. And my time and energy was, was ag across so many different things that I could never fully go in on that one thing. And so that was the moment when I was like, all right, it's time to go all in on the one thing. I'm going to hang out here because this is something that I don't know that we hear enough stories about um, in the sense that 
I think you could reach in your creative career this place of like really good. Like you could reach like level seven out of every, out of ten, and you can keep choosing seven activities, seven you know below seven and eight activities, but not really get to that ten thing. Not to really get to that ten because there's this fear that if you let start letting go of those good things, that well first the the first layer of fear is often well what if I don't get more of that back? Like what if I just let it go yeah. and I don't replace it? but I think there's a deeper fear. It's like, what if I actually have to then start calling my own shit about this stuff that I've been putting off and I actually have to like get into the arena and, and put, put myself and my soul and my work on the line. That's really scary. So I'm going to retreat back to these things that I know I could do. Mm, And you stay mm. stuck there. Does that resonate for you? Yep. 100%. And of course those things that I was stuck in that I was really good at Gay Hendricks talks about the difference between our zone of excellence and our zone of genius. And our zone of excellence is what usually people want to pay us for and we're great at, but it's not necessarily like the thing we're here to do. And so I was like, so in my zone of comfort, in my zone of excellence, doing things where I was making all of my income and suddenly wanting to go into this foreign unknown territory that everyone told me was like so hard to do and getting a book deal and like, you know, actually having the book work is like, you know, it's, it was super risky. And so it's like, what do you do? Super risky. (laughs) And so just as a sign for people listening, if you, you know that you're sort of in that excellent zone when um, it takes hard work to do what you do, but you still know at a certain point that it's safe. Like you're not really mm-hmm. going to fail. You can't really embrace what like Seth might say, that mentality of this might not work, right? If you're mm-hmm. doing things where you know it's going to work or you have a high degree of probability that it's going to work, you're probably in that comfort zone, right? Um, and, 100%. Yeah, and so I'm not saying you have to abandon all of it, but just know that you're there and start figuring out if you want to stay there. And if you want to stay there because you've got other things going on in your life and that's your priority, that's fantastic. But be truthful about the story you're telling yourself, right? Because there yes. is no future where it's going to get easier to do. It doesn't happen. Um, yes. So you have a really interesting story here because um, one of the things that you were um, I, trying to do in the original um, parts of writing your book was you're trying to do it the way that everyone says you have to do it, right? Um, but that didn't quite work for you. So tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading an article that Ryan Holiday wrote, and he said, don't write a word of your book until you have the structure. And, you know, I clearly I sold a book, I sold a proposal that had a very clear structure. But, you know, I like to think of the writing process almost like peeling back an onion. And once you peel a layer off, you realize, oh, actually, there's something deeper that wants to be revealed. And then you peel that off, you're like, oh, 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 oh. And so I felt like the proposal for me was like that first layer where it was all the safe stories, all the like safe way of talking about it, sort of like journalistic and um, at a distance, not really getting vulnerable or opening up to the reader, basically doing everything that I, that I thought would be safe and therefore no one would judge me or reject me and I would always be loved. (laughs) And, you know, and I realized, um, when I got sat down to write, well, first off, I just like could not write the things that I thought I was supposed to write. It was like something was saying like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And so I decided to try a little experiment. Well, first off, I had to like take Ryan Holiday's advice out of my brain because that wasn't working for me. And I decided to start just with the stories. And I remembered my, my good friend, El Luna said to me once when I started making art, she noticed that a lot of my art and writing was always so focused on helping other people. And she, she challenged me and she said, 
what would it look like if the things you created healed your own toothache, which was apparently something that like Picasso said. And so she said, you know, what if your work could actually heal and work on what you're working on? And I thought that was so interesting. And so I started with the question of um, what are the stories that I, that I ache to tell? And I just started mind mapping all of these interesting stories. And I would just every day be like, where is it that I feel like I'm so pulled and called to do? What do I, what am I aching to write? And that's how my writing process began. Yeah. So the writing process is interesting because it takes you into places where you didn't expect it to go. Right. And especially when you approach it from a place of worry and a place of should, and you know, here's how it should look and all this different things. It's really easy to get away from that, that, nugget of, of wonder that you talked about, right? Or that you just mentioned. So how did you come back to the wonder when you strayed from it? Great question. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about writing a book about choosing wonder over worry is that every single day, every single moment, I'm being invited to live that message. And it's been so humbling because there's been so many times when I realize, oh my God, I'm, I'm, launch- I'm writing this book from a place of worry. I'm launching this book from a place of worry. This is the worry launch plan. This is the like worry writing process. And I think the most important step there is to have that awareness that like, whoa, how I'm coming from this with like anxiety and thinking I don't have enough time and I'm not doing it the right way. And oh my God, what are people going to think is only going to squash the writing process. So the first step is just to like cultivate that awareness and to notice like what, where, where are your thoughts? are at and notice how those thoughts are impacting your behavior. Because if I'm in a rush to do something, even if I'm like, sit, like I'm in the launch process right now, if I'm in a rush to make an ask, it's a shitty ask, you know, because I'm telling myself a story that there's not enough time. And so it's, I just, you know, first that awareness and then two, in the writing process, particularly I used my worries as fuel for what I wrote about. And so it ended up being this really beautiful process. Uh, Julian Cameron says in her book, The Artist's Way, eavesdrop, don't invent. And what she means by that is, you know, we may try to invite, invent this perfect sentence, invent this beautiful essay or chapter that just impresses people and wins everyone over, or we can actually just eavesdrop on our own emotions, our own experiences. We can observe what's happening. We can notice and write from that place. And that's really what the writing journey um, became, which was I would notice, oh, wow, my perfectionist is really loud right now. And this is what my perfectionist is saying. Oh, wait, let me write that down. Once I wrote that down, then I was like, I'm always like coaching, like in guiding myself. So I would like take myself through the process of moving. Okay, I have awareness. Now that I notice the perfectionist, I can name it to tame it. Now let me talk to the perfectionist and ask what's up okay, the perfectionist is just worried that um, they want this to be really good and they just want me to make sure that I know that they want it to be really good. I'm like, I got it. I want it to be good too. And then I like step three, make a request, which is like, hey, perfectionist, I'm going to need you to go over there because I need to get messy right now so that we can get through this first draft. And then I'm going to invite you in because you're so good at the editing process. I'm going to invite you in then, then, but right now, please step over there. So it was like this like, crazy process of like, I was the guinea pig real time. And then once I had those notes, I would turn that into a piece. That's fantastic. (laughs) And I think this far you've done maybe two, you've done it two or three times where you've 
um, objectified your story or you've at least called mm. out the, the inner narrative going on and then started working with the story. And, you know, when, when you're in sort of the coaching businesses like we are and, and you're in that sort of business, you can see these stories. But there's a power, yeah. you know, in being able to say, oh, this is a story. It's not necessarily a true story. It's not necessarily my story. It's not necessarily something that I have to own. It's just a story. What am I going to do about it? Because that's the thing about yes. it. If you don't engage with the story, it owns you, right? Yes. And so um, I was just pulling that out because I was like, hmm, I bet she's going to do this a few more times, right? That, that we can see <laughs> that there's this part of like, oh, story here. Oh, yes. like thought here, not my thought, or maybe it's my thought. I'm not sure. Let's engage with it. Let's write about it. Let's move it around um, as opposed to it being the thing that you can't. It's kind of like you get the story uh, away from as much as you can away from you in the page, because if you don't do that, it's in front of you in the page. That sounds yes. very writerly, you know, but it's like you can't do anything, but that story is messing with you as long as it's right there in front of you. Does any of that make sense? It 100% makes sense. And you're, what, you, what you're speaking to and what I realized in writing the book was that, you know, choose wonder over worry has this really nice, like, choose wonder rather, you know, choose wonder, or do you want to come from worry or wonder? But then also there's this deeper meaning of like, get curious and wonder about your worries. Get curious and wonder about the stories that you're telling yourselves, engage with them, dialogue with them. And that's the process of rewriting. Because re when we realize, I love that you said that, um, Every moment of our lives is a story that we're telling ourselves. And sometimes those stories serve us, and sometimes they really stifle us and hold us back. And when we can recognize, oh, like, you know, and I say the diagram I have in the book is like, um, there's what happens and there's what, what we make that mean. And in the intersection of those two is, is our story. And so there's always like, it could be like I had someone once tell me, a mentor who I so respected, that my story didn't matter. And to me as like a vulnerable storyteller, I made that mean that I didn't matter. And so that was like the meaning that I took from this side comment. Oh, I don't know if they're going to care about your story. I don't think it matters, which he may have like had a really useful piece of feedback, but because it like, I made it mean I didn't matter. I didn't get curious. I didn't engage with him. I didn't ask him what he meant when he said that. Instead for years, I believed I didn't matter because I created that story. And so when we can recognize that we're meaning-making machines, we're story-making machines, then we can craft narratives that support us. Um, we can uncover these stories that are disempowering that we tell ourselves. And then that's when we can really actually access and get to our truth. Precisely. If you're already writing a story, why not write a good one? Right. <laughs> uh, rather than reinforce the ones that, that we sort of get from society or, you know, that we told ourselves or like we mentioned, like you just misheard something or you weren't curious about it. Right. And all yeah. of a sudden that's something that you hold on to. Um, and that becomes, um, you know, being a philosopher, I, I will only be careful about becomes true because it sounds like I'm making a <laughs> metaphysical statement, but it becomes operative for the way that you orient to the world. Mm. Right. Mm, and that's mm, the really mm. important piece is um, we don't have to get into the truth conditionals. Um, one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that I love about Choose, Wonder Over Worry is it's like, you know, it takes this concept of worry and it doesn't just say, okay, worry. It's like, no, there's these different kinds of worries. There's these different ways in mm -hmm. which worry shows up. Um, and it's a wonderful way because it's like it expands our color box of emotion, right? We go from like those eight colors, 
like and realize this blue color of worry has all sorts of different shades to it. And there are different ways that we can do, you know, things with it. So what are some of the way, the most common ways that worry show up and, and how might we get in touch with how to engage with that particular type of worry? Yeah. So I think one of the big ones is, um, I don't have enough time, which really is, I don't have clear priorities. I don't know what matters. And I'd say, yeah, the biggest, like, you know, when I was coaching a lot of creatives, it was always, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to do the thing that actually matters. And I'm like, wait, but what then actually matters? And so it's noticing and asking yourself when you're telling yourself, you don't have enough time, like, wait, what is my priority right now? What is my priority these next three months? What am I truly committing to? And, you know, reframing and wondering where, where the wonder piece comes in, where did I get this belief that I don't have enough time? I'm in the book, the soul of money, um, who wrote it, forgetting her name, but she talks about how we wake, we have this like scarcity driven society where we wake up and we already, our first thought is I didn't get enough sleep and I don't have enough time to do the things that I want to do today. And it's that scarcity that influences all our decisions throughout the day. And so how we move beyond, you know, that scarcity, that not enoughness of time is to first, again, notice it, notice you're buying into it and to realize that you can buy into a different choice. And you can do that by getting clear on what, what actually matters. Um, another big one that I see, you know, I call it the myth of not enough, which, which again, speaks to this not enough time, not enoughness can show up in all forms. I am not influential enough, powerful enough. I don't have enough money. Um, I'm not good looking enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not what fill in the blank enough, or just, I'm not enough. You know, I've advised CEOs who have access to millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, yet still have this story that they don't have enough time or money to do the things that they want to do. And I've worked with people who came from nothing and again, still buying to that story. So it's, it's, again, it's this awareness piece of how do we notice these, these stories that we're telling ourselves? How do we notice? And indeed, um, you know, something that's when you get down to talking about priorities, you, I mean, I think a lot of people get confused about the difference between an aspiration and a priority. And that's where so many troubles lie, right? Because it's like, mm. I'm aspiring to be a painter, but mm. it's not really a priority, right? They've got other stuff in their world, like kids and family and jobs and things like that, that are a real priority and they're good things. But we always want to say like my, you know, this aspiration, like that's my priority. It's like, no, it's not. And I think when you get clear about the difference between the two, between the th ways you aspire to be and what actually really, really matters to you, I think you can start to get some um, both purchase in how you're spending your time, but I think you can also find some self-compassion because you realize like, no, actually this thing over here actually really matters to me. And mm -hmm. this painting thing, it's like an aspiration. I would love to do it, but at the end of the day, that's not what's calling to me right now for whatever reason. And so I think that's where just from a linguistic piece and sort of riffing on this is just, we got to be super careful about when we say priority, we mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of coming from the Gandhian sort of quote that um, action expresses priority, mm, meaning mm -hmm. the things that you do are the things that invoke your priorities. And so if you're doing different things, be curious and wonderful, you know, about what it is about those things that, that are calling to priorities. And it could be fears, right? It could be fears and worries, but there's still underneath those fears and worries, there's a hook to something that matters to you. Um, because for instance, yes. we don't, most of us don't aspire to be, um, a garbage collector, right? We're, we're not particularly envious of those particular things. So whatever they do, like we don't, 
have a lot of attachment about their world and how it relates to ours. However, we do want to be writers or creatives or entrepreneurs or things like that. And so we tell ourselves stories in different ways. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. And something that made me think of is how often do we, you know, I, I love the quote, action. What was it? Action, action creates expresses, priorities. Action expresses priorities. So action expresses priorities, but how often are we acting on things and spending our times in our time and way in ways that are not actually meaningful that don't express our priorities? And that's what I find more often that when people actually assess the way they're spending their time, those two hours on Instagram probably weren't that meaningful. Or, you know, all of the, I, I luckily was not in the dating app world that I met someone before that existed, but I was hearing recently, like you can spend three hours swiping. And I'm like, what if you like went somewhere and like devoted to like meeting people in real life? (laughs) And so I'm always interested in how we want to spend our time, how we're spending our time and what that gap is. Yeah. Thanks for pulling me back on there. Um, because that was, that's the trouble because on the one hand, it's true that action expresses priority. Exactly. Like spending three hours swiping on Tumblr. Like I'm with, not Tumblr. Is that what it is? Tinder, Tinder. Tinder, Tinder. <laughs> hey, I was married before any of this came out. Right? I know, clearly we're, this is not our, this is not our thing. We, we can talk Instagram. Instagram. Like, I can't even talk on Instagram because I'm still not on Instagram, but, um, I feel <laughs> okay. old all of a sudden. Anyways, uh, moving on, um, I think underneath, like underneath that swiping, that three hours of swiping, like really, if you get wondered, if you start wondering about that, you see mm-hmm. either I'm swiping for three hours because I'm afraid to get up and meet people in person. And this, yes. this gives me sort of the same sort of dopamine hit of that without all of the fears, um, or I'm bored and it's just, you know, a dopamine hit. Or the third thing is I'm addicted to technology, which is totally a thing in the sense where they've got us hooked in dopamine cycles and things. But stepping back and saying like, is three hours on this app, whatever the app may be, um, really how I most want to spend my time and how am I going to change that? What is that saying about me that that's Mm -hmm. what I do? And do I like Mm -hmm. that story? And if you don't like the story, do something different, right? Action expresses priority. Yeah. And I think it's that moment of choice, right? The choosing wonder, the choosing Absolutely. to make a different thing that makes the difference, right? And living that sort of um, illuminated life that, that we've been talking about since, you know, Socrates' time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think understanding what's motivating me, I love how you were speaking to that. Is it a feeling of loneliness? Is it a feeling of fear? You know, what's, what's having you hide or escape and having compassion when you go there, because it can be what I, what I often find is that people then immediately shame themselves mm-hmm. and make themselves wrong. And that's really when, you know, we can invite self-compassion because there's a part of us that's aching and that's desiring connection, that's desiring to play bigger, but, you know, is afraid to like, you know, I can say there's many times where I've been afraid to put myself out there. And so it was much easier to either like swipe or take that third glass of wine or my early twenties, it looked like popping Adderall. Um, because I was so scared. So of the worries that you listed, which are the top three that, um, require the most intentionality and work from you to not, um, have them have a grip on you? Hmm. Definitely. I'm not good enough. 
that when I, I, when I got to the last page of my book, my first thought was, this isn't good enough. (laughs) And then I just laughed because I thought, wow, I just wrote a whole book about (laughs) working through this. And here, my first thought is I'm not good enough. And I was like, oh, but again, like the work isn't to make it go away. And I'd like to speak to this a little bit because this has been really sensitive lately. I've had a lot of people on these interviews, as I'm getting ready to do this book more, people keep asking me how they get rid of worry and how they get rid of the fear of being good enough and how they make these things go away. And, you know, I keep, which makes me a little sad because we're not going to like cut off a part of us. And, you know, so the first thing I, I invite them to do is to not try to get rid of it, but to actually look at that language because we've evolved with worry and fear and it's here to protect us and keep us safe. And oftentimes it's really important and we need it. Um, and so it's more, the question more is how do we learn to have a relationship with these things? And so when I'm not good enough pops up, do we want to like, you know, am I trying to like crush that part of myself or am I saying, Oh, like, Hey, you're showing up and you care and you're feeling a little achy right now. Thanks for being here. And so, you know, it's, it's that ongoing relationship. So am I good enough is a big one. Um, will they hate it? you know, because I decided to go the approach in the book where I didn't write this, this safe book that felt very distant, I decided to really go there in the storytelling to get very vulnerable, to open up about my relationship, about some struggles with eating disorders and addiction. And, um, and, you know, I, I really, I was sick of reading books that just talked about the success and the high points. I really wanted to talk about the struggles and the low points. And so with that, you know, there's, I'm afraid for people to see me and to, you know, know that at one point I was like, had a seizure because I took too much Adderall because I wanted to get more done and be thin and be accepted and loved by all. And, um, and so it's more this, this fear of being seen for who, for who I really am. That's, that's something that I'm facing on a regular basis. And then, you know, I think what comes along with that is, um, can I handle how people respond to it? You know, I, I often think that a, a fear of rejection is really actually a fear of not being able to handle the response. And that's what I can actually control is how I respond and handle what's going to come at me. And so, you know, as this book has gone out there, it's been very polarizing. I feel like people either like, you know, like someone was like, this is terrible. She didn't teach me anything about worry. she didn't help me get rid of my worry. <laughs> Or like, I suggest Miss Ray write fiction. And then other people are like, I want to tattoo her words on my body. But it can be so easy to like, go full in focusing only on the negative, only hearing that to reinforce my own fears of not being good enough, not being worthy. And, and, you know, all of those thoughts that sometimes I can think that again, are a story, and not me, not my thoughts, but thoughts that, you know, that happen and show up. And so I'd say, yeah, those are the, the three big ones, the three big ones that I've been um, facing leading up to the launch. Have there been any that were sort of in the background because of just where you are in your life that now that you are going to the launch, now that you've written, like now they've come up, it's like, oh, you didn't know I was here, but now I am so here. Yeah. I mean, I think that last one about being seen, I was like, Oh, no big deal. The vulnerable storytelling that like, um, this is how I write totally. And then it was only like recently where I was like, Oh, um, there's a really scary story that Farhad's family is going to (laughs) read. And like, you know, as it's gotten closer and closer and I really, I tell a story about my dad being an addict and that leading to his death. And, um, you know, so that that's been coming up a lot there. I'm trying to think of what else has been really those are, I think those are the, the main ones. And we mentioned before recording that um, there's been, 
um, a slew of rejections that have come up. And so tied yeah. to those top things. So tell us a little bit more about that and how you're processing that and just what it's teaching you about worry and wonder. Yeah, well, what I think is so interesting about rejection, so rejection actually triggers a part of our brain responsible for physical pain. And so when someone rejects us, which when we think about, you know, thousands of years ago, rejection actually could lead to a tr- like a death. Um, you could be kicked out of the tribe and you could die. And so because of that, that's how our brain has evolved to handle rejection. So someone says they don't like it. Someone says no. Someone, you know, sort of pushes you off and, and you know, rejects you in some way that can trigger that same um, experience in the brain. And so, of course, the process of bringing anything into the world, for me, this book, but for you, whatever your creative project is, every stage of that process, there is going to be so much rejection to get to that yes. And so, of course, the question becomes, how do we build resilience? How do we keep showing up when we keep hearing no? I I think Paulo Coelho, I think he was rejected like 200 times before he, um, The Alchemist, went on to be a book. And I just think about like the 199 times that he said, okay, I'm going to show up again. And, you know, as getting this out there, whether it was like, and I actually flew across the, the world to see if Paula would write the forward to my book. This was months ago. And while I did get in touch with him, he said, no, under contract, he can't. But, you know, every stage, whether it's like collecting blurbs or like getting the message out there, hit like, you know, reaching out to media or actually putting it in the hands of early readers, there's going to be people who love it and people who hate it. And, you know, I feel like the interesting part of this book process for me is that I thought when the book came out, I like crossed a finish line. And I actually realized that when the book comes out is when I'm at the starting line and the guy shoots the gun and I've just been in the dojo this entire time. So I, it's been helpful to think of the creative process as, as being in this dojo where now all this rejection is helping me lean in and grow. And you know, how I move through it is continuing to have compassion for myself and to see, cause you know, I think everything in our life is a mirror. Our relationships are a mirror. Um, what we see in the world is a mirror and it's all a mirror of our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own emotions, our own stories about ourselves. And so when I notice myself gripping onto someone saying like Amber's words have no substance, instead of being like, you know, pointing the finger at that person, I'll actually turn it back at myself and say, where am I telling myself that my words don't have substance? Where is that coming from? And when I can tune inward, it no longer becomes about something happening out there. It becomes about a chance for me to shift and to really meet that achy part of me with compassion. And when I can do that, I actually have compassion for the other person because how they're judging me is a reflection of how they're judging themselves. And so it becomes this like, again, I can't, and in order for me to have compassion for them, it starts with me having compassion for myself. And so it's really like, if anything, rejection has taught me more about empathy and compassion for myself and for the world um, than I ever would have expected. And I realized that like, now I look forward to no's. I look forward to no's because what it's showing is like, you know, alignment and not alignment. And it's, I had this moment, I just, I'm just remembering this quote, Ash Ambridge, who I love, um, the middle finger project. Uh, She, I called her in this panic moment of rejection. And she said something so brilliant. She said, um, you know, people either love or hate the color pink. And that doesn't mean that anything is wrong with pink. It just means that people have different preferences and worldviews. But imagine if pink tried to be a faded version of itself to please the people who hated the color pink. 
like that would be so unfortunate. And so I think any time that we see rejection as like, oh, we need to please more of those people, we're wasting our time because we're fading who we are to try and please someone else. And so, you know, I've been urging myself to own my pinkness. (laughs) I would urge anyone listening to own, you know, whatever color that they are. That's fantastic because, you know, we do spend an inordinate amount of time trying to make our naysayers happy, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, to go to Taylor Swift here, like haters are going to hate, right? (laughs) Actually, we can go back further than that, but I'm just going to stick with Taylor right now, right? (laughs) Haters, I mean, they've got a vested interest, right, to doing that. Like, you're not going to change a hater's mind about your work um, and about your character or anything like that. Like, if they're coming from that sort of space, there's nothing you can do, right? Yeah. Um, But what we do is because we have this negativity bias, we have this sort of worry bias. We focus on that one or three you know, naysayers out of a hundred and forget about all the yaysayers, right? The 97 that are like, we really love what you're doing. Or the people who are just like mildly golf clapping. They're like, right. And you're like, (laughs) why aren't you applauding louder? Like, I want more from you. Please see me. Right. Um, And so we're always in that place where it's like, we're focusing on something. Now I'm curious because um, again, to riff off of Seth here, like there's this place where we need to be as, as artists where it's like, we need to get to the point where I can say, this is not for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This, this work, like it's not reaching you in the right way from a place of integrity with the spirit of the work. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the other side, there's this being able to listen and hear feedback about totally. this substance and about like, no, it actually did miss the mark. Right. This was mm-hmm. for me. It missed the mark. Um, mm-hmm. And you, we can be too sloppy, I think, sometimes when it's like, oh, if it's not good feedback, I'm not going to pay attention to it, right? Because it wasn't for them versus those people who are like, no, actually, um, this didn't show up the way that, that it could have or should have, or you, you didn't play your best game in this section. How do you, yeah. Amber, sort of deal with that tension there? Yeah, well, I think it's the what's so important, and I love that you brought up Seth, because when I worked with Seth, he always encouraged us to, for, he said, if if everyone likes your work, then your work is average. And so he really encouraged us to be more polarizing. And, you know, I think it's being able to know the two poles. So when someone says, this is awful, has no substance, I hate it. Like, it depends on the quality of the feedback. If someone's like, you know, and I think that's where we differentiate between what is actually like, um, un- useless criticism and what's constructive feedback or feed forward, as I love to call it. And, you know, I think it's knowing who those people are and knowing who, you know, the people are that you trust that get your work that you can turn to and say, how do I make this better? And I always like, I can be someone who jumps really quick to feedback. And this is feedback I've gotten is that, you know, connect before I correct, which basically is, you know, and this is what, what works for me when I'm noticing works with other people, I'm going to, this is what really connected with me. This is what really landed. And here are the three suggestions that I have to have it land more for me. And I, you know, and there was through the writing process, I had these set of friends who I would give the work to and who would give that sort of feedback and it ended up helping make the work that much better. Um, and I'm sure, you know, this is my first book. I'm sure there are like, there are 10 ways that I want to improve it, but it's done and I can't because there comes a point where there's a deadline and then that's what you get to do in book two, you know? And so I think it's 
one, being able to know who those people are, two, know, you know, and be open to what they have to say. But then three, equally as important to hearing what they have to say is to then take in what actually resonates with you. Because, you know, not all the feedback that you're get that, and this is like not all the feedback that I got was worth changes that I wanted to make. And so it's being able to differentiate between what someone wants and the worldview and the perspective that they're coming through when they say that, and what really feels in line and integrity with what I, as the artist, am trying to create. Yeah. In other words, it's tricky. Right, that last bit is super. It's a super. fine line. It's like, and then there isn't. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Say, you're, you're absolutely right. Keep going. I mean, there isn't a right or wrong way, and it's. I feel like, for me, when I give myself to approach it as an experiment where I'm going to fail and mess up and learn and grow and adjust, that that helps me to um, not try to do it all perfectly. Yeah, I think it's helpful to see like, it's all practice. Right. And if you make it the final performance, like if you make this book and the way that it showed out, like the final performance of Amber's writing and her body of work and her entire history, there's no good outcome to that. Right. Um, yeah. Because inevitably, and I'm, I'm sure this has happened. I think I heard it earlier. Like there are things now that you're doing interviews that you wish maybe you would have stressed more maybe in the beginning or in a preface or something like that, because you're like, Oh, I didn't consider it that way. Or I didn't really stress, or maybe you misread that you don't get over fears or you don't get over worries like that you carry them with you. But at yeah. a certain point, like every writer, every artist knows like you're not done with that. Like, like that piece isn't done. You're done with the piece. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, cause it's never going to be done. It's never like at a certain point, you just got to be saying that that's what it is. I got to move on to the next thing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that was the other set thing. Come on, ship it, ship it, ship it, make it good. And his whole thing was good enough. You know, he really, for, I think several of us on that team, on the Domino project team were, I'd say would, were borderline perfectionists and we really had to face wanting every detail to be perfect. Cause it was like, we didn't have time to let it be perfect. It was just go, go, go. Yeah. And then Seth is like, so we're going to publish a book every three weeks. And you're like, what now? <laughs> right? What? Um, yes, that's what's happening. Right. Or six yeah. weeks or whatever. Idea to manuscript and it was 12 weeks. I, but like idea to man, like idea to published in 12 weeks, Yeah, which included, I'm pretty sure the actual writing of the book, <laughs> which is, I like, I wrote my book in two and a half months and I thought that was insane. So yeah, it's all sort of insane in a way, right? Um, <laughs> this is how we dole out the insanity when it comes to creative work, right? You can create, you can dole it out over nine months and have little eeks of insanity, or you can just, you know, how did you get it done in two and a half months? That's that, I'm super curious about that now. I went to Bali and I shut out the world is the short answer. Okay. The longer answer is <laughs> I, cause when they, when I got the deal, which was exactly this time last year, um, they said, can you write it? like by this date, which was like, I think it was like mid July. And I said, yes, of course. Um, didn't even give it a thought was in full wonder mode. And then I land in Bali and start panicking. Um, and so I'd say the biggest thing is I, yeah, one went someplace, told people that I loved that I was going to be less contact. And I like completely, I did not have a sip of alcohol the entire time that I was 
um, writing. And I just like was so ritualistic. I, I went to like, I woke up at sunrise. I did my rituals. I did the writing. Even if I didn't want to write, I would like go to write. And really it was an opportunity to continue pushing through that resistance as Stephen Pressfield says. And the biggest thing was that I followed these threads of worries and anxieties and fears and used them as fuel for the work, as I mentioned earlier. And so it, the writing process ended up being like this emergent thing. And I mean, I had the crazy, I started imagining characters. So actually how the structure of the book emerged, which was three weeks before my deadline, by the way, where in the book, you meet all these different characters. You meet imposter syndrome, you meet fear, you meet anxiety, you meet addiction, you meet hustling for approval, you meet curiosity, courage, and compassion. And like how that came was because I was literally meeting these characters as I was writing the book. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, And then like even at a point where when I at one point was so panicked about not having enough time that I imagined a dog running around the villa and the dog jumped on my lap and the dog's name was time. And then time was like, pet me if you're ever worried about time. And so I would like, um, sit there and, and pet this imaginary dog. And it really helped. I have to say, it was like, again, taking what's inside my head and making it objects that I can have distance from enabled me to move from like noise inside of me to something that I could look at. And so that became the key. Um, And through all these characters that I met and talked to, I structured the book that way as a result. So you spent most of your time in Bali in a mild hallucinogenic state is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Kind of, except I was completely sober. (laughs) I was like hallucinating off of green juice. (laughs) Off of green juice and worry, apparently. (laughs) And wonder. Yeah, it makes a wonderful cocktail, turns out. Yeah. But I also was doing a lot of like yoga nidra, which is like deep meditative where they take you through these visualizations. And so it was like in every visualization or every yoga class is like when I would imagine something. And so I have a very, very vivid and visual imagination. It's been like this for a very long time. And so that's where a lot of the characters be like, Hey, I'm the perfectionist. And I'm like, Oh, and then I would talk to the characters. (laughs) Might sound crazy. It really worked for me. (laughs) Although I've heard like Stephen Pressfield say that he um, cause he writes a lot of fiction, but that like you start talking and asking these characters what they want to say, how they want to, like how they want to respond to the situation. It becomes so much about like a play that plays out inside your own mind and how you capture and write down that play. Yeah. Almost every creative that I know or that I've interviewed, um, almost all of our practices require us to make the concepts tangible and sort of concrete mm-hmm. in a way. Right. So whether it's, you're a nonfiction author and you're writing about concepts and you have to come up with physical metaphors to be able to understand and explain it, whether you're talking about what there's always this sort of um, objectifying concepts um, mm-hmm. that, that make it work. And we, it sounds crazy. No, like everyone has their own way of doing this. Right. Um, and it sounds crazy, but it's actually pretty common, right. That that's the way we get it done. Um, it, because I think our minds are just terrible places to live as creative people. Right. Mm -hmm, We have to, mm -hmm. we have to sort of get these stories out. We got to get these concepts out. We got to get these structures out and we have to see them in the world. Um, partially because our entire brain is set up for us to see things like like 80% of our brain is meant for us seeing things in the world and things like that. So if you're just lost in your head and you don't have these visual cues, you're relying on like 20% of your, of your, (laughs) of your brain structure to help you with that. And so I think that's part of the reason why there's so much of these, um, externalization of ideas, um, and concepts and characters and things like that to get stuff done. Cause you just can't do it inside your own brain. You don't have the resources for it. 
Mm, that makes me feel less like a crazy person. <laughs> um, well, to be creative, like we all have to be functionally delusional in a way. I mean, yeah, we just yeah, do because totally. we have to think that our book is going to be the one that gets read and, and changes the world. We're going to think that our book is the one that, a, that an acquisition editor is going to like. Right. We got to think that our book is the one that's going to meet people's attention. Like, and so, but when you look at the statistics, your odds are against you, right? That yeah. your book is going to get picked up, that someone's going to buy it and like it, that the people who you want to interview are actually going to care, right? The odds are against you, but yet you have to yeah. believe that you can beat those odds despite the statistics telling you otherwise. A lot of courage. Yeah. Yeah. It helps me to. When I, the question I always ask myself is, if success or failure didn't matter, would I still do it? Because when I can take, if I'm like chasing an outcome, that's never good for me. But if I know that because I care so damn much about the work, because it means so much to me, because my heart's in the right place, because this is what I feel like I must and have to do, that the success and failure doesn't actually matter. It's more about the journey of learning. Um, I find that that's really the sweet spot. And that's what I found in the journey of this book, which is why it's, you know, I feel like I'm all in in all ways. So looking at where you are now in April, 2018, mm -hmm. what is your biggest worry and how are you converting, how are you converting that into wonder? Or how are you choosing wonder from that worry? My biggest worry, I'm going to go outside my creativity in the book. And this has been my biggest, I'd say recurring worry since I was a kid which is that I will be abandoned and that, you know, I, I realized I didn't realize this until my early twenties, but my father died when I was 12 and then my mom remarried and then that relationship ended. So the stepfather then, um, is no longer a relationship in my life. And so I created this story that men I love will leave me. And I noticed it start to show up with my relationship with my fiance, where all of a sudden I would have these crazy visuals that he got into a car accident and died. And I would just like have these in Gay Hendricks in the big leap, he calls this upper limiting, which is that we think we can only have a certain amount of success, abundance, or joy in our lives. And when our thermometer of success, if you think about it as a thermometer, let's say my thermometer is at 90 degrees. And when I start to get to 92, because I'm experiencing so much love in my life, I will self-sabotage to bring it down to a place where I'm more comfortable. And so, you know, I had, as I had never seen a successful model of a relationship in my life. My grandma's divorced, my mom's divorced, like, you know, there was no successful models. And so when I met and fell madly in love and this man is adoring, I started to really self-sabotage or worry that he was going to die and I would be left and abandoned. And this man that I so deeply love would leave me. And how I worked through that, and then, you know, it's still something that I know has come up from time to time, is that I had the realization that I will never leave me. And it's not about what's happening out there again. It's about what's happening in me. And I, I met with someone who guided me actually through a visualization. And in that visualization, she took me to a moment when I was nine months old in my crib. And I, my dad walked in under the influence. And I then created this story that men are unsafe. And I'm able to now actually go back, and, and this is what like helps me moment to moment. I pick up myself from the crib. I put myself to my chest and say, it's okay, you're safe here. I will never leave you. And so it's 
I feel like so many of our anxieties, our worries, our fears, our doubts are these like achy little children inside of us that are like dying for our attention, compassion, and love. And so the biggest thing is to just like love that part of me that's aching and afraid and to say, it's okay. I see you. You're safe here. And I will never leave you. We're, we're in this together. And when I can really embrace myself with that amount of compassion rather than, you know, shame myself, that's when I find that I'm really able to show up for anything. That's fantastic. Um, and that's, that's a pretty good place to wrap things up. So as to, as the <laughs> guest, no, I'm serious. It's a wonderful place to start. As the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge. So Ooh. based upon what we've talked about, um, what would you invite or challenge, depending upon which one resonates with you, our listeners to do? Dear lovely listeners, I invite and challenge you, because I feel like it's a little bit of both, to notice just to become aware of when you are approaching a situation, a conversation, an opportunity, a possibility with worry or wonder. If you're feeling anxious about it, if you're, you know, just start to notice your story, start to notice the thoughts that you're having, start to notice where you're coming from. And rather than doing anything about it just yet, just notice and cultivate that awareness. And I'd love to, I also invite you to tell me what you discover. Where can we tell you what do, what we discover? You can tell me, well, I'm obsessed with Instagram. I know you're not on Instagram, but um, I'm Hey Amber Ray, H-E-Y-A-M-B-E-R-R-A-E. So if you ever want to comment on anything, even send me a message there. Um, I would, I'll, I read and respond to just about everything, uh, at least right now. <laughs> Um, and would love to hear from you there. Uh, you can also, I'm at my website's amberray.com. The book website's choosewonder.com. And yeah, that's where you can reach out to me. Amber, it's been a thrill having you. Um, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you. I love this conversation. All right, dear listener, you heard it from Amber. In the situation that you are um, approaching, how can you... Um, Notice where you're in wonder versus in worry. And for that particular moment, choose wonder. What are the great things that might come out of it? Might, what might you learn from that? What new things might manifest because of the situation that you're walking into? You'll probably find it far more powerful than just looking at what bad things can happen. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 